So, I'd like to share with you something that I believe God wants to raise in our hearts. And I know tonight is, the focus is leadership, potential leaders open to that. But I believe God wants to, to raise something of expectations and to challenge us about, if I can use the word thresholds, in our lives as leaders. And I want to I talk about, I know it is a, a subject that's sometimes too easily talked about or things are, the word is used, the word revival is sometimes used too easily, you know. So, but I want to talk about two revivals in the Bible. And I want to talk about two individuals that were involved in these revivals. They were significant revivals in all of history, but they are some of the few revivals that are recorded in the Bible. There are a number of revivals recorded in the Bible history that we can read about. I want to talk about two of them. Uh, and if you were at the equip, you would have heard Brad Lane speak on, on one of them, which I'm going to touch on, the revival that happened in the house of Cornelius. The first New Testament Gentile revival where in one moment a whole room full of Gentiles were filled with the Spirit, the first Gentile move and revival in the New Testament. I'm going to talk about that. And I'm going to talk about a revival that happened among, we can call them pagans in the Old Testament term, also among pagans in the time of Jonah, the revival under Jonah. And I'm going to talk about the two, and I want to show some parallels between the two, and I want to have a look at the two individuals that were involved. Peter, in the one, Jonah in the other. And actually, there's a very common thread between the two, which we will pick up, and that is the town of Joppa. Both of these revivals had links with the same town, Joppa, and both individuals, Peter and Jonah, came from the same area, the area of Galilee. And it's quite amazing that Joppa was the place of challenge, where their thresholds were challenged of these two people. So, this, I know you know the stories, but anyway, let me run through them very quickly. Let's start with Jonah, the revival in Nineveh. It goes through the book of Jonah, chapters 1 to 4. But Jonah was a highly successful prophet. He lived around 782 to 753 BC. And the, he had prophesied under the reign of King Jeroboam II that the borders of Israel would be restored and it happened exactly as Jonah prophesied. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 14. So he was a famous prophet. He prophesied national border changes and restoration of the national borders. And it happened in his lifetime. So he was, he was a celebrity prophet of his day. Um, and it happened at the time where Israel's main enemies were the Assyrian Empire, and there was a moment of instability in the Assyrian Empire that were attacking Israel. There was a moment of instability, and in that time there was an expansion of Israel's borders. And so Jonah the prophet was up there. He was highly esteemed as a prophet. So in this time, I mean, he's really riding the wave of, uh, of his recognition as this mighty prophet in Israel. And then God comes to him and he says to him, okay, Jonah... I want you to go and I want you to go and prophesy 
in Nineveh to the Assyrians, the arch enemy of Israel. One of the commentators, Michael Griffith, says to try and understand how Jonah must have felt when God said to him, go and prophesy this warning to Nineveh that God wants to bring judgment upon them. He said, imagine a Frenchman living in France who's, who's lived under three times where the Germans had occupied his country and coming to his, and then being told to go to Germany and actually bring them a warning so that they can repent. And so that is how Jonah was because they had been invaded over and over and over by the Assyrians and now if God sends a warning, generally speaking, he gives a warning so that there can be repentance. And so really for Jonah, this was going to work completely against all of his credentials. Number one, he was going to go and prophesy to Israel's arch enemies. Number two, if they repent and judgment doesn't come, he's going to be hated by his people because they would rather have had the judgment fall upon the people of Assyria at that time. And so, in order to protect his reputation and everything, Jonah decides to flee. Instead of going from Joppa, the 800 kilometers to Nineveh, he gets on a boat and uh, he heads the 3,000 kilometers on a ship in the opposite direction altogether. So he heads out that way. So what happens now? Jonah pays the fare and he gets on a ship. Now, on this ship or this boat that Jonah gets on, there were no Jews. It was a boat full of pagan sailors. So that's an important thing to see. So he gets on a boat full of pagans. Remembering he's a Jew and he's got an issue with pagans. I mean, he, he was great as a prophet of Israel. He didn't want to go to the pagans and to prophesy to them. God calls him, he flees, and he ends up on a boat full of pagans. So he's so disturbed by all of this that he goes down, finds the place, he lies down, and he falls asleep. Now, falling asleep is a theme through this. You remember Peter was also sleeping when God came and gave him a, a, this sheet vision that came down. So here he is, he falls asleep. And God sends the storm. The pagan captain wakes up the sleeping man of God. It's this picture we must remember. The pagan captain wakes up the sleeping man of God and says, cry out to your God. And I think we can relate to that. This world of ours is in a massive storm. Is it not that they are saying to the church, wake up. Cry out to your God, maybe he will save us. And I think that's something that needs to make us very sober. That this is exactly what's happening in our world now. And so, he wakes up Jonah. And um, Jonah's changed. It's a change that's happened. This was the man that had wanted nothing to do with pagans. He wanted to flee as far as he could from them. He wakes up and he says, throw me overboard that I can die so that you can live. That's literally what he said. So they throw him overboard. He gets rescued by the big fish. Fish takes him back to the starting point, to Joppa. Spits him out there in Joppa. This place of the challenging of our thresholds. What thresholds are we willing to cross to see God move? 
That's the question. So he spits him back out there. And he didn't have the right attitude. God sometimes can work through us even when our attitudes are wrong. But he goes and he walks 800 kilometers. That wasn't just he got spewed out on the beach in front of Nineveh. No, he walked from Joppa to 800 kilometers. If you work out about 30 kilometers a day, that's about a month or so of walking. He walks all the way there, gets to the city. There's this massive repentance as he proclaims. How he did it, we don't know exactly, but the city, the city of 120,000 people, come under such conviction by this man that's walked to their city. They come under such conviction that even the rulers of the city repent. The governments, the officials. Imagine that happening in Johannesburg. Imagine, imagine that, that even the governments and the gang leaders and everything in the city repent. That the level of revival is so strong that that happens. And that's why I say God wants to raise our expectations of what he can do. Even here. And to think about that. And so, and so remember this was a vicious and a violent people. This was not a, a bunch of really people just on the brink of being saved. And the power of God comes upon them. So much so they even cover their animals with sackcloth. I mean, just imagine the BMWs and the things covered in sackcloth around Johannesburg. It's just such repentance. They covered all the, like, and there was just this, such a deep, they wanted everything to just bow before God as the conviction came. Anyway, Jonah gets angry and we'll end the story there. He still had some things God needed to sort out in his own character. But, so let's go to the Gentile revival in the New Testament, Acts chapter 10. So, there's 800 years. We had 800 kilometers, now we've got 800 years. 800 years later, same time. There'd been great revival among Jews. There were no Gentile Christians in the church. We sometimes forget that, that the early days of the church, it was full of Jews. With all of their Jewish cultures and traditions were part of the Christian church. No, no Gentiles. And then there's this man by the name of Cornelius. And if you were there, forgive me, I'm repeating stuff that you've heard recently. But Cornelius was an Italian. It says that he was an Italian. And uh, he had at least, because he was a centurion, you know, he, he had a, at least 100 plus troops under him. He was sent from Italy to the area of Caesarea, this town of Caesarea, to keep the peace, to keep order there. So he was there. He came out of a Roman environment which was totally pagan. It was the early days of Christianity. He came there. His only exposure was pagan gods and he gets sent to a troublesome sector of the Roman Empire, which was Israel. They were giving the Romans trouble all along. He ends up there. I don't think it was the prize, first prize to be posted there, but he ends up there, and somehow he gets exposed to the God of Israel while he's there. So much so that he becomes devout. He wasn't saved, but he had, had some experience of God that made him actually start to 
be aware there is a God here and that he needs to be served and that he started to change his life around it, even though he hadn't taken a step of actually surrendering his life over to, to Jesus. But he became devout. So much so that one of his soldiers is described in Acts chapter 10 as devout. And he gained such respect in the community that when he finally called a meeting, there was a whole crowd that pitched up at his house. So this was a man that had arrived there And God had worked in his heart to bring him to a place where actually he was ready for revival. And so that's in the town of Caesarea and uh, some kilometers away is another town of Joppa that we've been speaking about. And there is Peter who is there and he's asleep and in this trance state that he's in, God shows him this this vision of the sheet with what the Jews would see as unclean animals. And God says to him, kill and eat. And in the vision, he says, I can never do that. I've never, ever touched anything unclean. And the sheet goes up and comes down. Kill and eat three times, it happened. And in that place, God is challenging his threshold. Remember the culture of a Jewish person, even though he had become a Christian, He'd never entered into a Gentile house before. That would be the rule. You don't cross that threshold. You stay there, a Jewish person. And so here he is and he's being challenged at this point. Anyway, the story is that God speaks to Cornelius and says to him, send for this Peter to come and preach to your house. So he sends three people. They walk through the night 50 kilometers from from uh, Caesarea to Joppa, they walk that road, they get there, they ask Peter to come. He's now been prepared by God. He walks the 50 kilometers back with him to Caesarea and there he starts to preach. As he comes into the house of Cornelius, Cornelius throws himself under the, on the floor in front of Peter and starts to worship him. And the Jew now sees this Gentile falling on the ground before him and he says these words, I'm just a human being, just like you. Get up, don't worship me. And he crosses the threshold and he goes in and he starts to preach and he can't even finish his sermon. While he's busy preaching, the Spirit of God comes down and the household is saved and all the people that had gathered there were saved. And so we have these two great revivals and there's some parallels there and then I want to bring it down to our own hearts and our own lives. And I want to touch on a few things that I believe are important. Now I want us to look at the activity of God in all of these things that we've read about or, or listened to and that we can read about in the scriptures. But the activities of God, because I do believe God wants us to become aware more of his activities in actually seeing great, great numbers of people coming to know him. I believe that's his heart. But he wants us to learn the activities of God and he wants us to learn the thresholds in our lives that maybe are the very things he needs us to say, God, I will cross that threshold. So those are the things. So the first one is easy with the activity of God to prepare the harvest. Now, I think what's important here is that I believe God wants to raise our expectation that he is working to ready the harvest for us. I don't want to say that it's going to be easy, but I want to say God is more intent on the harvest than what we are. And 
when Jesus says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest fields. We need to understand this thing, that this is who God is. He's God of the harvest. That's who he is. We need to remember that's one of his descriptions in the Bible. He's the Lord of the harvest. He is Lord over the harvest. Is those that are not yet saved that he's preparing for us to see come in. He's the Lord of the harvest. So we've got to see he's actively working in his harvest field and he's, he's urging us to say, Lord, send workers. Pray. Send workers into the harvest field. So the activity of God. So first thing is we need to see that these two revivals happened at pivotal times in the, the lives of the people that were touched by the revival. They were pivotal times. In history even. When you look at the Assyrians... I've had a look, so I'm not going to bore you with the detail. But they say the Assyrian army to have, uh, the Assyrian people to have gathered in Nineveh with their leaders, there was a, it was a pivotal moment, it was a weak point in their history that they had retreated from their borders and they'd gathered together in Nineveh for a brief period in their history. And that is a time, it was a pivotal moment, it was a weak point in their lives. There was something going on and the historians have got some details about what was happening in Assyria at the time of Jonah. And who was behind it? The Lord of the harvest. And when you look at our world, I believe we're in a pivotal time in our world's history. When you look at the shakings that have been going on, it's a, I believe it's a pivotal time. And I mean, we're nervous to, to, to step out and prophesy this and prophesy that. But I can say something that my wife and I feel in our hearts, and I think many of you probably the same. But we believe it's a pivotal time in history where we need to be very earnestly having our ears open, our prayers going out regularly because it's a pivotal time in history. There were pivotal times in history and we see here, this was one of them with the time of Jonah. I just briefly want to relate um, in 2021. We drove through the town of Wellington. 2020. 2020. We drove through the town of Wellington in the Cape. 21, I was right. There we go. Not that tired. 2021. We drove through the town of Wellington. If you know the town of Wellington, I didn't know the town. I drove through. I saw the statue of this guy in front of a church. The statue. And uh, I looked at the plaque and it said Andrew Murray on the plaque. Now, for those that don't know, Andrew Murray was one of the key role players in one of the great revivals in South Africa's history. So I looked at this plaque and we drove on when we got home, we were on holiday. When we got home that night, we spoke about it and we spoke to each other and we said, you know what, our hearts were touched when we drove past the statue. So we spoke and we said, let's go back there. So we were staying in Somerset West in, on holiday. And so two days later, we drove all the way back to Wellington and we went to this church and we went into the garden. We didn't want to bother anybody. We just went into the garden. We felt we must start to pray. And we, we remember, I've read many books of Andrew Murray, and I know some of the history of that revival under him that touched all, nation, uh, all levels of people in South Africa, whatever. And so we walked around this garden. So this was the church where Andrew Murray used to be based. So we walked around in the garden, and we started to pray. And it was like the presence of God came upon us in waves as we started to cry out and we noticed each other's prayers and we started to pray for God to pour out over South Africa and over the nations of the world. 
Delene started to pray, and I listened to her prayer. She was saying, oh Lord, you are the longing of the nations. You are the longing of the nations. We call out to you. You are the, the one the nations are longing for. And she just kept repeating this phrase, which is part of a scripture. We went and read it afterwards. I started to pray a scripture from Isaiah chapter 64, I think it is, where it says, oh Lord, would you rend the heavens and come down? And we started to pray, and we felt such a strong sense to cry out to God in this pivotal time. That was in, in COVID time, in the pivotal time in history to do that when we finished praying we were so touched we went and we read through the scriptures that we'd been praying and Delian's scripture comes from Haggai chapter 2 and in that says it says there and once again I will shake the heavens and the earth and I will shake all nations and the treasures of the nations will come in and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord and the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former that was the scripture that we were praying and we read that and it says, and once again I will shake all nations. And for our own encouragement, two days later, after we prayed there, they announced, the South African scientists announced to the world that the Omicron variant had been discovered in South Africa. And we watched the stock exchanges of the world when that announcement went out. The whole world shook. So for us, we, we felt that scripture and God saying, I'm going to shake the, the nations. And two days later, it shook literally um, in, in that sense. So we felt very encouraged to say, God, we believe we're hearing from you and we want to keep praying. And so we committed from that day. We've been doing it every, every night since then. We've been crying out to God, oh Lord, with the treasures of the nations coming because the shaking, I, I have this image of shaking when you've got something stuck in a tin can that you want to get out. Maybe it's your, your, your life savings and they're stuck in the bottom of the tin can. And you want to shake it so that the treasures can come out. You shake it. I believe that's what Haggai was prophesying. God is shaking that the treasures, and who are the treasures of the nations? They are the ones that God is calling into his kingdom that are stuck in this world, stuck in its ways, stuck in the, the bedrock of society of this world. And God wants to shake the that the treasures can come in and he will fill his house with glory. So I, I believe that that's my paraphrasing of something of what we pray on a, virtually on a, every night we cry out to God, oh Lord, would you cover the earth with your glory? And so I want to just say that is that I believe this was a pivotal time in Assyria's history and at a pivotal time God took a, a man and he challenged him to cross a threshold that he didn't want to cross. A threshold that challenged everything about who he was. Everything that he stood for and everything that, that was comfortable for him. And God says, step over the threshold, I'm in this. And it took some dealings with him. But eventually he did. And God did something incredible. So it was a pivotal time in history. The same with Cornelius. The coincidences of him being posted from Italy to Caesarea to be exposed to the God of Israel, to build up a reputation where he could invite Gentiles to his house and people would come and they don't stay in those positions very long, generally speaking. And at, at that time, that Peter was in Joppa, 50 kilometers down the road. It was a pivotal moment. The setup was there. The Lord of the harvest was working. And in that moment, God comes. And there's a harvest that takes place. And I believe God wants to encourage us to say the Lord of the harvest is working right here in your backyard. The Lord of the harvest. He is longing 
for the treasures of the nations to come in. But he's looking for his people to cross the thresholds. Might be different things for different people. But I want you to start thinking that at the end I want us to pray about thresholds. What is God saying to you? Now for Peter it was just, it was a physical one meter threshold to step across the front door of a Gentile's house. That was his threshold. He'd never ever done it in his life before. It was a one meter threshold. He just had to do that. And it became the catalyst for the revival that we are living in as Gentiles. Most of you here, I presume. That revival that came, Peter crossed the threshold, is what we're living in. We're living in the effects, the aftermath of that today. So what are the thresholds in your life? And it's very different to the time when Jesus said to Peter, you know, climb out of the boat. That for me was something different. That was a faith risk, a faith adventure. But I believe God, later on, was challenging a different threshold in Peter's life. This was not a threshold of step out in great faith, do some great thing for God. This was to cross a threshold that went against all comfort zones in his entire being. The same with Jonah. This was not some, okay, trust God, we're going to do something great for God. No, this was to actually break through the comfort zones where I feel comfortable to operate, where I feel safe, where I feel I'm able to, to, to do what God's called me to do in that environment. And God says, I want you to cross out of that threshold. And that doesn't mean it's something weird, something whatever, but I believe all of us have got things in our lives that God's saying, I want you to step out the threshold. Step over the line in what I am saying to you. And I want to bring you into a place where you will see the Lord of the harvest do things you never thought possible that he could do through your life. It might be something small. This is a small testimony. Um, in, in a certain way in terms of numbers and so on. But I remember we went to Australia uh, many years ago and, and we went across for, for training with New Covenant Ministries and in one of the messages, um, I think it was in Australia, in, in one of the messages, Daddy was teaching and he, 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 he spoke and he said, you should be giving invitations for people to give their lives to Christ in your meeting. Now, I'm not saying you must do that. This is what he was teaching us at that time, 20 years ago. And as he spoke, my wife and I both felt convicted because we didn't do it. Our church was, was such that we knew all the people, so it felt silly to say, does anybody want to get saved here this morning? Because we knew everybody. So it felt awkward. But we went back and we said, we feel God's spoken to us. This really doesn't feel right, but we're going to do it anyway. So from the next Sunday when we got back, I started to do that. So is there anybody here who'd like to give their life to the Lord? I, I put it in after every message. Nobody responded. But we kept on and we kept on and we kept on and 
here and there, one person maybe, and we kept on, we kept on. But it was like, we felt like God said, step over the threshold. That was a threshold for me. It was an awkward thing for me to do. It felt silly, you know. And uh, I know somebody joined our church in that time because I, I said, I don't see anybody's hands. And afterwards he came and says, I'm going to join this church. At least the pastor's honest. You know, so I do remember that. I said, I don't see anybody's hands. And he said, okay, at least you're honest. But in any case, but then one day somebody came and gave me a word and said, I see God's put two swords in your hand. Anyway, the next Sunday I went and I said, Anybody here that wants to give their lives to the Lord? And there were some people. And the next Sunday, I did it again, and there were people. And the next Sunday again, and there were people. Every Sunday, one or two Sundays since then, and I'm talking of, I don't know how many years. Years now, every Sunday, somebody responds. How deep the response is, that's between them and God. But every Sunday, once or twice we'll go home and think, sure, there was nobody today. But virtually every Sunday since then, we've seen people responding when I ask, does somebody want to give their lives to Christ? So I'm saying, what are the thresholds in your life? So God prepares the harvest. My last point, though, is God wants to prepare the heart of the worker. When you have a look at the hearts of Peter and Jonah, there is work that God wants to do in our hearts. Because unfortunately, God's heart for the harvest is way beyond ours. And that's some of the reality we need to face. And I think sometimes we're living our Christianity in a realm that doesn't reflect the bigness of the longing of God for the harvest. And I believe God wants to work in our hearts that we can begin to wake up to the reality of God's heart for the harvest. And I'm not an evangelist. I'm not trying to... I'm saying this is a team effort of all the gifts in the body. But I'm saying God wants us to have a heart to say, you know what, I need to really see and catch God's heart for that. When you look at what happened with Jonah, Jonah ends up in the same boat with pagans, in the same storm with the pagans. He wasn't spared the storm they went through. They were all in the boat together. They were all about to sink. All of them in the boat together. And what happens in Jonah's heart is that I believe he falls asleep, doesn't know how else to do it, but falls asleep, which is for me, sometimes I don't want to rebuke any church directly. I'm saying in general that sometimes it's a picture of the church that we're asleep in the harvest. And then this voice comes, and it wasn't the voice of God directly. It was the voice of the pagan captain that says, wake up. Call out to your God. Maybe he can save us. And there's something of that that I believe that Jonah hears this. And he comes to realize that he's a fellow human being with the lost pagans on the ship. He's not some exclusive, separated community. 
apart from the masses. He's in the boat with them. They're all going down together in the turmoil and the trouble. And in that moment, he has compassion. And he realizes these are his fellow human beings. And he says, throw me overboard. You know, he's the only prophet that Jesus compared himself to ever. is Jonah. Because Jesus came and he dwelt among us. He experienced our humanity. He experienced it. He took it upon himself. And he, he climbed in the boat with us. I have a friend, George Steinman, who goes to the darkest places in the world where he ministers to people like in Goma in the areas of the DRC. It's his speciality place. He loves to go. And then he will find the most forgotten area in the most forgotten area of the DRC. And he'll go and look for, and then in the village, he'll go and look for the most forgotten person in that village. And then he's got a standard message that he will say to that person. He says to them this. He says, Jesus doesn't stand outside the hole that you're in and say, get out. Jesus climbs in the hole with you. He says, I'll help you to climb out. And there's something of that message that I believe Jonah comes to believe and to embrace. Peter, the same thing. He said to, to God in this vision, he said to the, God, he says, I've never in all my life touched anything unclean. I'm separated from, from everything. And by that he meant Gentiles. I've never got involved with them. Never, ever. And yet, when he gets to the threshold of Cornelius' house, he says to him, get up off your feet. I'm a fellow human being just like you. And there's something of that that God wants to do in the heart of the workers. He wants to bring us into a place where we actually realize that these people that God has put around us, this harvest field, it's us. It's not us and them. Gerald Coates came and preached, the late Gerald Coates preached in our church, and there's one thing I remember what he said. He says, in this world with all its sinners and all of that, it's not us and them. It's just us. It's just us. God wants to work in our hearts to realize, you know, he saved us, not by anything that we have done, but he saved us. But we're in the boat with him. It's just us. We fellow you. Get up off your feet. Let me come in and let me tell you about the one that saved me. He'll save you. And so there's something that God wants to do in our hearts. He wants to again ignite the deep compassion of the church for the harvest. And I believe that, that it's going to mean there might be some thresholds we're going to need to cross. Many times in history, the great revivals were called awakenings. It's an interesting word, but both of these cases, there was something that had to be awoken. And I do think that it is part of this thing of crossing the thresholds. We've got to wake up. Now, Archie Kendall, he speaks a lot about revivals and things like that. But one of the things he says about the sleepy church, he says, when you are sleeping, he says, you don't know you're asleep. Until you've been woken up. And when you're asleep, you will allow things to be done in your environment or even to you that you wouldn't do if you were awake. You wouldn't have allowed them. And that's the reality that when the church is sleepy, we allow certain things to happen to us that we wouldn't if we were awake. And there's something of that when the alarm goes off in the morning, we actually don't want to wake up. And this intrudes into our sleep and we're saying, shush that thing. Get it to stop intruding into my sleep. And sometimes we don't want to hear the words that want to say, wake up, call out to your God. 
Because it's intrusive to us. It's intrusive to our comfort zones. And the intrusive message is, wake up, the harvest is ready. It is ripe unto harvest. And God would stir us. And so God wants to work in the heart of the workers. So in closing, I want to again ask, and I'm not trying to be um, getting you to be emotional about it all, but I, I wanted to ask Lord God, what are the things that need to awaken in my life that I can see the harvest If you remember though, the disciples were, were trying to get Jesus to eat something in John chapter 4. And Jesus says, I've got food you don't know anything about. And they didn't understand what it was. And he says, lift your eyes and see the harvest. And I, I just really believe God wants to stir us to say, what is the things that need to wake up to what God wants to use me for in the harvest? And what are the thresholds in my life that God wants me to cross? So I just like us to take a few minutes. Two, three minutes. To just open our hearts to him. And say, Lord, awaken me where I need to wake up. Awaken me. Challenge my comfort zones. The thresholds of my comfort zones. Challenge them, Lord. What are you saying? And I don't want to put ideas in your head. But I think God will personally speak to his sons and his daughters. What are the things that he's saying? Step out and see what I will do. So if you wouldn't mind just taking a few moments there in your own private space to contemplate that and then I'll just pray. So let God minister to us. I'd like to close with the scripture that I mentioned earlier. I want to pray it over us. It's the prayer of Isaiah, Isaiah 64. O oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes the water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. 
when you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. Lord, we want to pray for that into our own hearts, Lord. We want to pray that you will rend the heavens in that sense. That you would rend our hearts, Lord. That you would light fires, Lord. That you would set this ordinary brushwood of your people, your church, we ordinary brushwood, but that you would set fire, oh Lord, that will make the waters of the nations boil. We want to pray for that, Lord God. We want to pray, Lord God, that the challenges, the wake-up calls you've been giving to us long before tonight, tonight's not the wake-up call, they've been coming to your sons and your daughters, but that those wake-up calls, Lord, that tonight we would say, oh Lord, I'm not going to hit down the alarm again. I'm going to hear. I'm going to let it intervene into my comfort zones. I'm going to let it challenge my thresholds. I'm going to let it enlarge my view of things. Lord, let it ring loud. Let it awaken me. I pray that tonight in Jesus' name. I pray, Lord God, as I come before you, not to proclaim that I'm going to do great things for you, Lord, but to proclaim, Lord, that you are a great God that is looking for ordinary people, even with some wrong attitudes, but that if they will step out, Lord, that you will do things that they did not expect, that they didn't even look for, you will do great things. So we want to ask tonight for fires to be ignited in hearts, Lord, for wake-up calls to be, be activated deep within our slumbering areas of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you.